0: bbcc episode 37 my realization of the day is takashi Miike the tarantino of japanese cinema or i guess since Miike started his career earlier it would be the other way around you know qt does love his eastern influences though in a potentially controversial opinion between the two of them QT actually treats his women better. More on that can of worms here on the first extra bloody episode of 2021. Let's get it. hello. It's me, your favorite stone ghost, Devon Taylor, and this is the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club. It's a new year. Welcome back if you're a returning listener. Glad to have you here. If you're a new listener, hello. Welcome. This is a horror podcast breaking down the subgenres within our favorite horror movies. Each month, we have an overarching each month we have an overarching theme, and then each episode we talk movies within that theme, and then break them down even further into more specific subgenres. We're kicking off January talking J horror. I want to uh, take a international trip to start off 2021. In 2019, one of my goals was actually to watch more foreign language cinema, and um, I definitely started to. Um, maybe not numbers wise, but I started to touch on multiple different countries. Um, for the longest time, whenever I would watch foreign cinema, I would only watch um, French films because I can understand a little bit of French. Took a few years back in the day. So it was like a little bit easier to keep up with. But now I think what it is, is like, because I understand the language of cinema better now. Like, I understand filmmaking a lot better. So, I can watch these foreign films. And I'm not as solely reliant on, you know, figuring out what's going on just by the dialogue. Like, the the movie experience doesn't hinge on dialogue anymore for me. Like, I noticed that um, in Parasite, you know, that was like... That was a film that was, you know, it's so great that it had the mainstream success that it did. It won the Oscar for Best Picture, and a lot of people watched it. And one thing that makes it so, you know, easy to watch, like, it's a very, like, Parasite is going to be, like, a go-to, like, when people need an entry point into starting to watch foreign language cinema, I'll recommend Parasite first because... Um, though it does have great dialogue to it, the dialogue in Parasite isn't like super important. It's all about like the visual storytelling. And that's whenever, like I said, I kind of noticed that I, it was so easy to watch that I was like, I wasn't sitting there studying the subtitles and then missing out on, you know, the other stuff that's going on. I was watching the film and I knew what was going on. And then if I wanted, you know, obviously to see the specific character stuff that they were saying or needing more context for something, then, you know, I can pay a little more attention to the subtitles when I need to, but I realized, you know, this year I can, you know, just it doesn't matter to me anymore. Like now it, I, I can pop on a foreign language film and I just watch it like any other film now, like, um, and I think that's great. I think a lot of people need to venture more into foreign language cinema because they, you know, every country tells their story differently. You know, film doesn't have a universal language, but it does have, you know, film doesn't have a universal language, but it also doesn't have a universal storytelling method either you know, every country, you know, when you think about, you know, um, even stories that, you know, people heard as kids from their grandparents, you know, from different country backgrounds, you know, the the stories are just different in the way that they tell them. And I think that translates into film as well. Um, every country, you know, kind of has their own little, you know, signature maybe. Um, And I mean, I don't, wanna just be like oh because I'm American and like I typically obviously watch mainly films in English like I won't say that we are one of the ones that I would say maybe doesn't have a signature because there's a little bit more variety um you know America you know you know um Hollywood U.S. Hollywood um producing American cinema you know when you refer to Hollywood as a whole you know does put out more films you know as far as quantity goes so maybe there's you know more variation and our storytelling signature maybe just doesn't stick out to me as much but I've noticed whenever I watch you know films from certain countries I kind of know a a certain way that they're going to go about it which I find very interesting and that, you know, carries into horror um, specifically, you know, because I feel like every country's horror genre is specific, is like very specific to them and their country. And, you know, and that includes the storytelling, but, you know, obviously the French are known for the French extremity, um, you know, um, J-horror kind of has their... Um, they're known for you know their supernatural ghost stories that we'll kind of we'll touch on that more in next episode when we're talking Juan on the Grudge, and then you know just all these other countries like kind of have like just like their 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 staple, and I find that very interesting. So that's what this month is about. This is J Horror January where um we will be watching all Japanese horror films. I tried to pick movies from like all the um iconic film directors um as far as like Japanese cinema goes so to start off today with a solo episode that's what I was gonna really start the episode off before talking all that this is my first solo episode since September like it's been a long time and which is super interesting, so I do want to take a minute, I guess, to reflect on the Blade Blunt Cinema Club in 2020 before we get into this episode and start talking the movies, is, you know, my original plan for the podcast was I was going to alternate every week, it was going to be guest episode, solo episode, I was going to alternate back and forth, you know, and I started off kind of doing that, I actually started off with a lot more solo episodes, and then there was like, from episode 10 through like 20 I was pretty good about flip-flopping back and forth but then yeah and then because episode 20 was the last solo episode that I did and then after that it'd been strictly guests and you know I did that obviously the thing with hosting a podcast by yourself is obviously you know it's I have to drive the show but at the same time, it's like I only have so much of a following, you know. So when you do a podcast, obviously you reach out to guests that have followings and you want to, you know, integrate it. You want to get that cross-pollination. That's the reason you have guests on the show. That's the reason I, I, that I like to guest on other people's podcasts. So that way, you know, I can take myself over there and also, you know, expose their audience to me, vice versa, and all those things. So it was tough to um only, you know, to alternate the episodes because the solo episodes just don't do the numbers that the guest episodes do. And I know that's not a knock against me. I know, I just know that, you know, more, there's a majority of people, you know, there's obviously the people that listen to the podcast for me, you know, people that I interact with on a daily basis. I won't call you guys fans cuz I don't like saying that I have fans. I don't think I do. But I know there are people that listen that will listen to the podcast regardless if if I have a guest on or if there is a guest at all or who the guest is, they'll listen anyways because they're, you know, dedicated to me and the show. But I know that a lot of the times a lot of the new listeners that come in are, you know, people from the guest audience that go, "Oh, hey, I know my person is going to be on this podcast. Sure, I'll take a listen. Or maybe there's people that don't listen to the podcast on a weekly basis, but then you know they'll. But then they listen whenever they see an episode have a guest on that they're intrigued about. I know I do that. You know I don't listen to every episode of all the podcasts that I listen to. Um, a few of them, I try to. I, I listen weekly. But a lot of the times, like sometimes I will skip an episode or so if it's like, oh, I don't really know who that guest is or I don't, you know, um, I or I don't care for the movie that they're talking about. Maybe I might skip that week, which is a bad habit because I should listen to I should listen to those episodes with the guests that I don't know. So that way I can, you know, meet new people and stuff. So it's it's all a it's all a thing. So and in. Especially going into like October and December, since those are big holiday months and those are big times to try to wrangle in new listeners, you know, talking about movies that everybody is watching at the same time, you know. So I felt like I needed to, especially for those two months, be like, okay, I need to have guests on for every week. And then November. Um, found footage is not only one of my favorite subgenres, but a favorite of a lot of other people. So I had just a lot of guests that wanted to come on the show and talk found footage movies because they love found footage. I mean, so I couldn't deny them there. And so I guess my plan going forward into 2021, because so far I have guests um, for the rest of this month, I have guests for. I think all of February, and then we'll see. We'll see about March because March has five weeks in it. So I mean, I think the majority of Bloody Blunt Cinema Club episodes will feature a guest or two. I did like that um, I was able to experiment with having multiple guests on, which I think is was a fun little switch up um, than just having one guest on. You know, not only switching up the number of films that we cover on the podcast, but also switching up the number of people that come on. Um, I think we had some great episodes, especially, like, the Paranormal Activity franchise Um, definitely, like, needed to guest because there was just so much to unpack um, in that franchise. And that was such a blast to do. So, going forward, um, majority of episodes will have guests on. Um, Maybe I'll just reserve solo episodes for bonus episodes. Um, My release schedule got all fucked up towards the end of the year. I was doing so good up until November of staying consistent, posting episodes weekly, and um, I just got really busy with other things, like in my real-life world. So, you know, it was whatever, and then December I was trying to get back on track, and then I still kept releasing episodes on random days. So now, new year, clean slate, I'm back on the schedule, new episodes every Tuesday. Every Tuesday, and most of them will feature guests solo episodes might have some bonus episodes on Fridays um, just like how I originally started but I enjoy doing these solo episodes you know it's nice for me to not be thinking about how to keep an interview going or how to you know transition stuff or keep track of my notes and like you know it, it's a lot going on when you're producing your own podcast and then also hosting it by yourself so um, I did want to start off the year with a solo episode, just me, nice and laid back, me and you, just smoking, chilling, having a good time, talking some movies, and um, also for going forward, um, I will kind of have a more consistent time, time frame, um, episode times have been just all over the place, so I'm going to try and keep them to 60 to 90 minutes Unless it's something that I just, like, really need to talk about for longer and then we'll stretch it to that two-hour mark. I hit the two-hour mark um, more times than I wanted to. Had a couple episodes I had to split into two, which I, like, didn't plan on. So, um, you know, I want to wrangle that in as well. You know, um, I just want to keep coming up with ways to improve the podcast, make it as... Um, make it the best that it can be, so that way we can uh, wrangle in more listeners, you know. I'm 35 episodes in now, so I think this is around the time that I'm going to start building a little bit more momentum as far as the audience goes, and that's going to help once I get back on track of posting, you know, on the consistent schedule. Um, I fell off even a little bit on the podcast Twitter page. I wasn't posting there as much, but I mean, I tweet from my personal page so much, And the podcast page will also be for like YouTube stuff as well. So, you know, make sure you guys are just following my personal Twitter page at underscore daddy disco, which is where I tweet the majority of the stuff for Blay Blunt Cinema Club. That's where I'm live tweeting movies while I'm watching them a lot of the time. Um, I don't usually do it for podcast movies because I'm obviously already taking notes for the podcast, but um for movies that aren't covered on the podcast that I'm just watching, you can always follow along and um, you know, talk movies with me there, but that is where I also post majority of the podcast news. Totally not related, but another thing that started changing at the end of the year last year. And is, you know, going to be the thing going forward um, is I record the podcast at my apartment now. Um, me and Brittany, who was a guest on the show, um, we are no longer together. But it's great. It's all good. We're actually doing really good. We're still super close friends. And I appreciate her very much because her allowing me to use her second bedroom to produce the podcast out of um, was, like, a big thing that I needed to get the podcast going, and, like, kind of have the motivation, and I was, you know, just watching Harley during the day, so it, like, kind of put me on, like, a, like, a work schedule, even though I wasn't working because of, you know, the pandemic going on, so, um, I am no longer recording at her place, unfortunately, um, we are no longer together, and she also moved anyway, so she's no longer in that house, so, The BBCC studio is no more. I am in my bedroom in my apartment in North Hollywood. Um, My walls are a little bit thin. Um, There's lots of noise outside the windows every day, all the time. And I have two roommates. So I apologize for any background noise you guys might hear in the podcast. I think I'm doing a pretty good job of still editing it. And you can't really tell. But occasionally, I think there's going to be more background noise than usual. My room also kind of echoes a little bit since I don't have like any um, like curtains or um, soundproofing up right now. So, you know what? It is what it is. But enough chit-chat. Enough about me. You guys are here for the movies. That's what we're all here for. We're here to talk some movies. And the two movies we're talking about today... This is a weird way to start off the podcast, because I didn't love them, but they're very interesting. And I can't wait to get into this Takashi Miike double feature. Ichi the Killer, released in 2001, directed by Takashi Miike. So I'm doing a double feature of Takashi Miike. Like I said, um, I kind of want to touch on all the iconic Japanese um, horror directors. And a lot of people would argue Miike is not even a horror director. Um, I mean, he isn't exclusively a horror director. He makes movies of all genre. But that's also the thing with his movies are they are like genre Like he just kind of he makes movies that have a little bit of everything um, I, I compared them to Tarantino in the intro because I mean I think that's kind of obvious in just the way that they handle violence and dark comedy. But if you look at um Mikay's immense filmography, I mean this dude has done so many movies he's so prolific like I mean he basically puts out you know at, at least one movie a year but he puts out like one to three like I mean the dude just like turns them out like a machine. And um if you kind of just look across his filmography though, he's done every genre, every subgenre. So I kinda also compare him to like a Brian De Palma um of Japan cinema. So I usually talk about the movies in the chronological year order that they came out because we're talking Ichi the Killer and Audition. And Audition came out first, but I don't have as much to talk about with Audition. I liked Ichi the Killer better. So we're going to talk Ichi first. So let's go ahead and um, talk about it. Ichi the Killer is a um, movie following various members of um, different Yakuza gang factions. And um, there's, you know, a Big Boss, Big Boss dies, and Leader of One Gang is looking for him. And um, he was very close with the boss. I think he might have been in love with him, too. It's kind of alluded to that he is. But we'll get to that here in a minute. Um, um, so our... I won't say... I mean, it's hard to say protagonist. Because it's actually funny. And, like, the description... They label Ichi as the protagonist. Ichi the titular character. And you think he is the main character of the film. But he's not. It is uh, Kakihara... Um, who, I love this man, uh, Kakihara is a sadomasochist enforcer for the Inejo, and I'm gonna be mispronouncing names all across this month, um, the, I I wanna say Inejo, but, like, cause that's how it's spelled, it's spelled like, you know, tequila Inejo, but it's Japanese, so maybe Inejo, Inejo, yeah, (laughs) I shouldn't put an accent on it to verify. That's terrible. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, Kakiara, he's a crazy, crazy enforcer guy. And he is looking for what happened to the boss, what happened to the money. He ran off with a girl. And then it turns out that he's dead. So now it turns into who's who did it. And it was Ichi the killer. Uh, Ichi is <laughs> this fucking weirdo um he's a kind of sad pathetic man um who's just kind of you know lets people walk all over him and he's always anxious and he he's super awkward and doesn't know how to interact with people but Ichi whenever triggered turns into a bloodthirsty uh crazy um costume wearing killer assassin dude and um, someone is, um, so Ichi is, th- this is a neo noir film. So, because there's lots of things going on and things that characters don't know about, you know, driving the plot here. So, let's go ahead and take it into the genre grinder. This is a, like I said, um, more than a horror film, this is a neo noir film. Um, I could easily see people arguing this is not a horror film. But I will describe it as a horror film just because of some of the imagery that we see. Um, um, Definitely the violence and the gore. I mean, this movie is absolutely disgusting. Um, It's super bloody. There's entrails everywhere. People are getting gutted. People are cutting body parts off. Um, I mean, it is just so gory. So, I mean, just because of the gratuitous nature of the gore and the violence is why I would consider this in the horror realm still. And like I said, Mike is he's a genre director, and that's really what this podcast is about. It's not really just horror films, but horror is more than just a genre, guys. It is genre film. Yes, that is what we're trying to get at here. So as we talk more subgenre stuff, this is a film, like I said, um despite it being named Ichi the Killer. Uh, kakihara is definitely our main character and so we have this psychopathic anti-hero because i will say anti-hero because um unlike ichi who can't really control his bloodlust and doesn't really um have a moral compass because his brain is all fucked up and warped while kakihara Kinda has a code to a degree. Um, I mean, because he's really just doing his job. He doesn't see what he's doing. But I guess that's why he's a psychopath too. Because he's like kind of... Well, he's not a psychopath. Because he does feel emotions. You know? So I don't... So I guess a sociopath. But they describe him as a psychopath. There's always that thin line. I don't know. Because he... There's things that he definitely enjoys and he feels things there's things that bring him joy um and but he is just so numb to the horrific things that he does like pain is his thing not only inflicting it on other people and like the pleasure he gets out of that but like the like kick he gets out of enduring pain as well and like the fact that he's just like kind of void of it you know he doesn't feel pain he's he is one with pain so he's he's a very interesting character and I'm I really dig him um, we'll get into that here in a minute um, there is and then like I said with the gore um, definitely puts in the body horror camp I mean there is um, some great imagery in it um, I mean Pinhead would have a big old hard on for this movie. Oh I bet this is Pinhead's favorite movie this. Ichi the Killer is Pinhead's favorite movie. There you go. That's the take from this episode, guys. Um, So so we get into the film. Um, It kicks off with, you know, kind of puts you into the... It establishes the tone with just, like, some weird editing. Things are kind of choppy. It's skipping between time periods. Um, You see the stylized, like, stuff that is put into the editing um, how things kind of skip frames. And then you are also, which is, um, the, the frame skipping is a big Takashi Mikay, um, staple I've noticed, um, in looking at clips of his other films and in audition as well. That's like one of his like things he likes to do. He like kind of puts, he'll skip a frame. So it kind of puts this stuttering effect in. Um, it's interesting. I dig it. And um, But what you really get introduced to is the score by Carrera Musication, what a name, and Seichi Yamamoto. Um, the score for Ichi the Killer drives the film. That's where um, the neo-noir vibes are definitely here. Because like I said, uh, neo-noir vibes you are usually either A, dealing with a detective on a case, you know, going through a CD world, like, that's something that is, you know, consistent in neo-noir films is, um, exploring the world that takes place in, um, and, or, you know, it's usually, like, gang-related stuff as well, and that's what you got going on here, I mean, this is gang shit to, to the T, and, um, but a neo-noir film, though, I've noted, you know, uh, I mean, really, it's, in noir film as well, i just say neo-noir because this is more modern and contemporary, but noir films are, you know, usually are driven with either, either or both, um, a narration from the protagonist, which we don't get here, but there is like a near ever presence by the score going on, and I mean the score is in about 80% of this film like it, they they you know will just turn it down for certain scenes with dialogue or with action in it but they won't like take it away completely except a few times I mean but and and when he does usually Mikkei takes everything away and then it's like just like the sound effects of the characters but the score is floating around um this movie and it is a banger this opening track for the opening scene i mean the opening scene not much is really going on it's just like kind of introducing you to some of the gang members um and the the score is just ah uh, it's a slapper and if the score is not good in a neo-noir film then you're gonna hate it because it's always there you know so um something that's super crucial when it comes to neo-noir films so what are some of the other things that I loved about this movie or that I thought were interesting? So um, I get into this in the next episode as well because I've already recorded it. But here I've noticed, you know, like um, Japanese directors introduce their characters more through their actions than their dialogue. Um, you know, they like to kind of just sh- they-, they show you, you know, characters so I like the way that Ichi is introduced at the beginning. Um, I didn't realize the flashback scene was Ichi. I thought it was uh, Kakihara at first, but it's not. So we we see Ichi outside or or it's not a flashback, but we're we're introduced to Ichi. He's um he's uh jerking off outside a window to a pimp raping a prostitute named Sailor, who we'll come to see. Poor fucking sailor. Jeez Louise. Um, I mean, he is, so we're introduced like right off the bat to the violence of the film. This pimp is beating the shit out of her and they rapes her. And it's just really brutal. And then we see Ichi in the window just watching. And then we see that he's turned on by it and he starts jerking it. And then when he's scared off, he had already came all over the plant and we start the movie with drippin' jizz. with the title in it. But that introduces you to this movie. But we really get int so that's how we get introduced to Ichi though. This is before we know that he's Ichi the killer. Um, and they kinda do a misdirect is um, you know, then we skip ahead, the boss is killed and just like it's absolutely brutal. There's just blood, guts everywhere and this cleaning crew comes in and this cleaning crew they usually clean up after assassins so when they see it they think that it was um kakihara but but it wasn't it was ichi and then um so you're introduced to both these characters in this one action because um you know the reputation of kakihara implies that it was him but then whenever it's like no this was actually Ichi we're like oh shit like Ichi the killer isn't playing around you know um but we are introduced to Kakihara as he goes to check out the scene and he's like it wasn't me um and then but when we get introduced to Kakihara so let's talk about this man one I mean so like he is he's very much he like you know gives me Patrick Bateman vibes and he's, he's that guy in a movie you're not supposed to like. I know I'm not supposed to like him. But man, I am in love with this man. He is so weird. But also, he's very sexy. Very hot. He has a great voice. Um, he's like the only Japanese person in this movie with blonde hair. And he rocks it. Speaking of rocking it, I don't think there's a psychopathic killer... That drips harder than this man Kakihara. This man has so many sequins jackets and long jackets and he's always in, you know, bright colors, he's always in pink and purple and red. He has great suits. He has great undershirts. He cares about his fashion. Like there's a scene later where he cuts his tongue off to um to give penance or whatever, and he, he puts on a bib. To cover up his outfit, but his bib is also just like a like this like super, you know, soft looking turquoise green silk scarf that he puts on over so that way he preserves his stuff. Preserve the drip at all costs. Um he's the very definition of extra. Um you will find out throughout this movie. But um he you you're introduced to him by so he also has all these crazy scars across his face, he has two crosses, like, one of them, like, right on his eye, and, like, the other one, like, above it, and they go across his face, like, the lines, and then he has, like, the fucking Joker slits cut up the side of his mouth, but then he has them, like, pinched at the corner, like, where your mouth would come together with with hoop earrings, with some rings, What? And he does, like, the first image we get is him turning around and he's smoking a cigarette. And the smoke's coming out through the slits. What? Ah, this man is too much. And he's got a great voice and just the way that he talks to people has a, like, really, he has a weirdly attractive smile that it's like, uh, like, it it, you, it just doesn't make sense. Um, But, man, I'm a big Kakihara fan after this movie. Um, which I thought, because the movie's called Ichi the Killer, and Kakihara is on all of, you know, the posters, all the, you know, everything about this movie is about Kakihara. So, going into, so for the first, like, 20 minutes of the movie, I thought Kakihara was Ichi, and then, yeah, so, got all that cleared up, right? Um, but the, 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 the violence of this movie... Uh, the kakihara is a demented man so there's a scene where he is torturing a a gangster who uh, he was given information saying that this gangster knew what was going on and organized um, organized the killing and or kidnapping of his boss and that's what this whole movie is is like it's i'm not gonna take you through the plot of this movie beat for beat or anything because it's hard because it just like kind of winds because it's people giving other people misinformation and backstabbing each other factions of the gang splitting off and doing their own thing and people you know going on this crazy manhunt you know for for ichi and um, and, and it's hard, it's kind of hard to follow a little bit. Um, the, the first at, or the first hour of this movie is great. I, 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 very much like the first half of this movie. And then the pacing gets kind of clunky in the middle during the second act when we start spending a lot more time with Ichi because he's just a weirdo, but then also the story just like kind of slows down. But like this first hour has like great kinetic energy to it. And so there's a scene where he is you know kind of you know so the boss is dead it sets off the chain of events you know so Kakihara is gonna torture this guy he has him suspended by hooks and um he and he um he's sticking him with these long like skinny needles those are Kakihar's weapon of choice throughout the movie um so this dude's suspended by all these hooks and it's funny um while he's torturing him he's making some shrimp he had told, before he knocked the guy out and had him suspended on the hooks, he told him to pick out some shrimp, and he was like, oh, yeah, okay. So, while he's torturing this maze, uh, is making some food, and all the other gangsters just, like, kind of chill while Kakihara does his thing, which I find really funny, because, like, that's the thing. Everyone respects the fuck out of Kakihara. They're all scared as shit of him. Um, he has this, you know, crazy reputation. And I love that that's, you know, the, the characterization we get is like the people, how they react to him and then his like crazy actions. So he fucking is torturing this guy. He's sticking it in his mouth and like, you know, through his lip and like up through the bottom of his chin. And then the guy's still not talking, still not giving him the information he wants. And then he pour, he goes over to the shrimp tempura that he's making and he takes the shrimp out He takes the boiling grease and pours it all over homies' back. like, And he's being suspended by his back on the hooks. So he's pouring the grease there and like down on his face. And Ichi's smiling and laughing while he's doing it. It's pretty brutal. Come to find out, the gangster he was torturing was innocent and was telling the truth. So everybody's like, okay, Kakiari, you've gone too far. So they want to exile him out of the gang. So he says, fuck it i'll take my boys with me though we're gonna be our own shit and then they're like ah fuck now we're screwed so um Har is just running around being extra as hell but he does try to apologize like i said um he apologizes for you know torturing him too much when he was like the innocent one by cutting off his tongue and giving it to him because he's extra as fuck but, of course, that's going to motivate that gangster to try and kill Kakihara now. So, we later on find out that, um, so, Ichi, when he goes on these blood rampages, because he gets turned on by, like, violence and rape and weird shit like that. And he always gets flashbacks to this memory of him as a child watching a girl get raped and staff helping her, he just got a boner and stood there. And, you know, I thought they were going to do something with that, but it turns out it's just uh, this guy, Gigi, has been manipulating Ichi into causing mayhem um, across the Yakuza and taking people out, you know, because, um, you know, I don't really know what Gigi's intentions game is because he, he tells Ichi, you know, because they're all bullies and stuff like that, which, I mean, he's not wrong. Um, but he is like, you know, manipulating him. So it's like these visions of the rape and then Ichi being turned on by the rape of Sailor and like that motivating him. And that's what motivates him to start killing is like he, the first person he kills is Sailor's pimp and he like loses it, you know? And then, so that's where, um, Mike is, you know, not very nice to the women characters, um, most of the women get more brutal deaths in this movie than the men do, you know, I mean, the men get some pretty brutal ones too, but some of them get, like, pretty, like, whatever, like, uh, there's a, a lot of the guys just get their throats cut, or, like, you know, get their bodies broken up, but, like, the chicks are getting beat on, they're getting raped, they're getting their throats slit, they're getting, um, fucking, you know, burnt, they're getting, Um, just like all this stuff and, and like, I know that's like kind of the, the, the whole thing of this movie is just like examining the, the hedonistic nature of these like hyper masculine men that just see women as literally nothing. Um, they kind of pass along this one gal, Karen, who is like an English speaking prostitute, but like, she just like is the the woman of the head boss and then after he dies then she becomes Kakihara's woman and all the women are just like kind of they're they're just and so it's like they're being used in the movie but I feel like they are being used as storytelling devices as well as far as like the rape and violence against them because the movie isn't really about the violence against them it's the, these men you know who are trying to kill each other and like you know one up each other for power and backstab each other but yet the women just like get the the brunt of it in in this film so that's like one thing that kind of rubbed me the wrong way and that's something i usually don't look out for like you know because if you're portraying something that that's just how it is in real life then i mean that's just kind of how it is but like i feel like in this movie It's just, like, kind of used, you know, not as, not as tastefully, you know, like, there's these twin detectives that, like, torture this other prostitute later with Kakihara, because they, they, like, are trying to use her for, they're trying to get information out of her now, and, again, it's just like, fuck, like, like, you don't gotta be like this, (laughs) you don't gotta be like this, so um, one thing that kind of did run me the wrong way, however, I will say when it comes to sex and gender, sexuality things, um, so, I don't know if I'm just reading into it, or if I'm just late, but Kakihara is a bisexual icon, yes, I mean, not only his style and drip, you know, but it is alluded that, like, you know, because, like, the, the boss is, like, the only person he seems to care about, And then people make jokes that he was, like, in love with him. And, like, was, like, on his balls. And, like, somebody even calls... Somebody calls Kakihara queer. And if you know Kakihara, if someone said some bullshit like that that wasn't true, he would just fuck him up and kill him. But he doesn't. He doesn't even respond to it. He just, like, kind of goes away. And so I was like, huh. Maybe he was in love with this boss that he's trying to find. And then... Whenever, um, Karen decides she wants to be, um, his woman, like, she, like, joins him in torturing a a, a waiter. They, they literally just pull his face off. (laughs) And they're, like, laughing, and she's, like, getting, like, all, like, fucking, like, having an orgasm while she's doing it. It's, it's a funny scene. And then it's immediately followed by, they have, um... Ichi is chained up. And he's just like having Karen beat the shit out of him. And he's shirtless. And she's in in some fucking, you know, lingerie. It's hot. They're in this pink room. And he's just chained up. And he's like, harder, harder. And he's telling her, you know, kind of his feelings. on. He goes, don't think of how they're feeling about the pain. Think of the pleasure you're feeling by inflicting the pain. And it was like. I don't know something about that's interesting to me but the scene though is queer as all get out so bisexual so so many bisexual vibes so i don't know that that is my of course starting off 2020 with a queer reading of ichi the killer that is that's that's me that's what this podcast is about um you know this movie like i said that the when they kind of get into Ichi stuff more um who one why does he wear like a, a racing outfit whenever he goes on these killing sprees like you think i know this movie is based off a of manga so i don't so i guess it's just that Ichi also kills people by he has blades in the heels of his shoes so he always always has to do some like real extra kicking shit but he also can just like eviscerate rooms of people which we never get to see, which I think is pretty cool. The way that they shoot some of Ichi's encounters. When they don't show the stuff, it's cool. When they do show it, for some reason, all the effects on Ichi's kills look like, like shit. I mean, they look like something like effects out of the Power Rangers or something. Maybe that's on purpose because of the manga tone. And this movie does kind of have this rough, rugged feel to it in general. Um, So I didn't love that, but... Um, you know, there, but then the third act it starts picking back up when Kakihara is kind of putting the pieces together of what's really going on and you know finding out that not only is Gigi behind it, he's secretly huge. That was kind of random. Um, there's a fun chase through the apartments once um Kakihara knows who Ichi is. There's a subplot with Kakihara's main bodyguard, who was like a disgraced detective. He has a subplot going on. Um, it, you know, the, the this movie, the themes are kind of muddled. So I found myself trying to figure out what the whole meaning was behind it. And there is something. I just can't really explain it. <laughs> um, it it's a fun watch. It's a little bit too long. Um, I think, why is it, like, a neo-noir, like, uh, requirement to be, like, they always hit the two-hour mark at least, which it's, like, I guess because you need time for just meandering around the world and watching characters do things, Um, but the second act does drag a little bit, but the finale is weird because it's, like, anticlimactic because you're waiting for Ichi and Kakihara to meet, to have their showdown, they're on the rooftop I mean weapons are drawn it's time but then Ichi just has a full on mental breakdown <laughs> because like that's the whole thing with this movie is like his brain is just like all fucked up and that's and the and Gigi had been implanting false memories into his brain to get him to do these things um so like Ichi just has a mental breakdown at the end of the movie and kakihara is trying to fight him and he's like trying to get him to stop crying he's like poking at him and he's like come on i'd want to fight you like how are we supposed to have our showdown like because kakihara he's excited because he's he thinks he finally found somebody that's crazier and scarier than him and is worthy to be his final opponent he wants ichi to kill him and then ichi just has a breakdown but kakihara gets his wish he gets uh kicked off the building And falls to his death. Um, While he's falling. He says wow this is so amazing. However. Twist. That didn't even happen. Like you think there's this like little showdown scene. You know. Ichi sticks his blade in Kakihara's forehead. And then kicks him off the bridge. But no. Ichi was still having his mental breakdown the whole time. And just while he was. Because Kakihara thought that Ichi killed the bodyguard's son but he didn't, so that was all just a hallucination, and then Kakiar threw himself off the uh, bridge and killed himself, so then I was like, eh, I don't like that, I didn't, I didn't like that little switcherouski there, overall, um, the movie itself is, I mean, it's fun, it's something I would watch again, but then when it gets to the middle, I would, like, do something else, like I don't know, this is a good like movie to watch in the background type deal, but I am obsessed with Kakihara. I mean, the looks, the moves, the kills, the attitude, the queerness, everything. Um, yeah, I'm all about. I'm all about Kakihara. He's a boss. So um, let's go ahead and get to the next film. <gasps> Audition, released in 2000, also directed by Takashi Mike. um, he has so many films in his filmography, but I chose probably his two most iconic, I want to fit a third film in there, I want to like, uh, see one of his more recent films, but I just didn't have the time for it, but, um, Audition is probably even more infamous than, um, than Ichi the Killer, um, which is interesting, you know, because this movie is not the movie you think it is, you know, that everyone thinks it is, um, when you think of this movie, you think of, um, you know, body horror torture shit, um, you know, that's what the, the movie is known for, you know, these horrific torture scenes, and yeah, they're in there, in the last 20 minutes of the movie, um, the previous hour and 40 minutes before that are a romance drama yeah so let's get into the genre grinder for this one um as i explain the plot of audition audition follows a man uh shigeharu uh oyama i'm gonna say that's how you say his last name uh Ayama. Um he's a middle-aged man, his wife dies at the beginning of the movie. He has a son and um you know, he's a sad widow man and his son is telling him his son and his friend are telling him like, "Hey, you need to get back out there. You need to find you a new woman, blah blah blah." blah, And he says, "Okay." And then but but he's like, ah, "I don't know. Like I'm not very good at the dating stuff anymore, like all this stuff." um you know I'm okay I got you kid it's all good but then his friend is like no 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 I got this great idea so his friend Yoshikawa decides hey let's put out like because because uh Ayama doesn't know how he's gonna find uh, a woman he goes I don't know how to find a woman I don't know how to date anymore and um um his boy says all right look I'm gonna put out a casting call For this movie. And like. I mean we're going to make a movie. Maybe. I don't know. But at the very least. We're going to audition all these girls. To be your next wife. And they won't know. They think they're auditioning for the movie. And you know. If it works out between you. And we can get the movie made cool. But like we just won't tell them that part. And. Which is. The plot of a rom-com like i think that is so funny and that's what the majority of this movie is is so they you know obviously and then it's they find a girl he falls in love with her and he falls in love with her all under this ruse you know but of course something is off with her he picks the wrong girl in his ruse and and um you know but the most the movie The first hour and fifteen minutes of the movie are a straight up rom com drama. Um, It's I mean it's not as funny, so I maybe I won't say a rom com, but it's like it's a romance. It's a romance drama of this this guy kind of trying to process his feelings about you know what's the what's the meaning of life without companionship? You know the the yearning um how there's a there's a great line everybody in Japan is lonely um I found that line like really interesting and it's you know exploring this guy's feelings about it you know and then you know but they they audition one of the girls uh enter homegirl Asami uh Yamazaki and Asami you know enthralls him Um, before the auditions even start he reads her audition letter and he's like so impressed with that and then when she gets there he's the only one that he like actually asks questions he lets his friend ask all the questions which the audition montage is hilarious they put like game show theme music behind it it's it's so okay yes this is a rom-com um this is a (laughs) rom-com and then um we go through all that. He falls in love with Asami, you know, pretty much immediately. And even at the audition, his friend's like, I don't know. Something seems off with her. And then he goes on a few dates. And his friend's like, hey, there's a, some things off. I checked some stuff uh, on her application that she seemed to have lied about. And then um, Ayama's just like, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. So that's basically the moral of this m- movie is um, don't ignore red flags. Um, you know, and... And it, it's trying to teach Ayama a lesson, you know, because he can't really decide if he needs companionship or if it's this idea of, you know, having a wife, a woman that does the things, the per- of having the perfect woman, you know, um, who is, you know, trained in, you know, the arts, but is also warm and compassionate and all these things as an empathetic listener is going to take care of him you know, because I guess he, you know, is having fears of, you know, but he's been, he's, or has fears of taking care of his son, you know, by himself and alone. So it's like, they want to make him out to be like, you know, that like, okay, like, yes, he lies. (laughs) He lies in this whole audition shenanigans. Like I, that's the whole thing. And and I guess like whenever someone is going to get brutally punished, I want to, know that they deserve it. And though even though he does a super skeezy, sleazy thing, I don't know if he deserves, you know, what he gets at the end. You know, I uh, spoilers, he doesn't die. So I mean, at least he lives. So maybe I guess his lesson is learned because like he just, you know, lies and he's, you know, um doesn't know if he's like in love with her or the idea of her um but then you know the thing is though it doesn't really matter because asami was just the wrong gal to pick because she cray cray um she um has had you know a very tough upbringing you know lonely being abused by men and then um yeah she fucking has this giant sack in her apartment and she just sits by the phone waiting for him. Um, so that's, so about an hour in, you know, or we get the sack. That's like the first like horror element is like, I guess it's like 50 minutes into the movie, maybe 45 minutes in where she's waiting on his phone call. And then the sack starts moving and like writhing around. So you know that that's a person in there. Um, and like, that's like kind of the first horror element we get, but then we don't really get anything for a little while so after uh asami and oyama go on lots of dates he decides to take her out of town to a beach resort thing he's gonna propose to her um you know he's he's super smitten all these things and then she makes him promise before they have sex that like you know that he's devoting to only her and all this stuff you know which is key and he's like yeah yeah of course and, um, but he never tells her about the ruse. He never tells her about his ex wife. Um, so then later on, that's what makes, um, so she disappears after this, after they have sex and all this stuff, and he proposes she disappears. So then this is where things start getting weird when he's on the hunt for her and questioning, you know, going to these places that she referenced on her applications. Um, she goes, he goes to this, uh, dance place where she claimed that she used to dance at. And there's a fucking wheelchair guy with creepy prosthetic feet. And, um, you know, that's, that's some horror imagery. I guess this is where it really starts kicking in. Um, and then, so she's not there. Um, but he said he, you know, knew her a long time ago. And then, um, he goes to this, like, club that she claimed that she worked at, but then she hasn't been there since the owner disappeared months ago, and fucking, um, he just dis- was disappeared and found dismembered, and, or, um, or not dismembered, somebody else was found dead, but then there was dismemberment, but then he also, th- he had extra things, a tongue and some fingers, um, and feet were also there on the crime scene, keep that in your brain, and then, so he's on the hunt for her, and then, while he's on the hunt for her, she goes to his apartment, finds that, um, he had an ex-wife, this makes her super mad, so she drugs his drink, and then, um, and then that, so then, then, this is an hour and a half into the movie, now, the horror starts she drugs him she knocks him out um she gives him this pair uh, you know paralytic agent that not only paralyzes him but like makes his like pain more amplified and sensitive and this is where the torture scene happens so if you are worried about watching audition and then you see the two-hour runtime and you know about the reputation of this movie and then that makes you go oh no I don't want to watch 2 hours of that like of, you know, 2 hours of torture. That's what I thought this movie was going to be. And I, I mean, that's kind of what I was hoping it was going to be was going to be 2 hours of torture. Um and it's not. It's it's 90 minutes of um rom-com shenanigans and then 30 minutes of pure um body horror um Asami, you know, Takes it up a few more levels. She's been pretty quiet throughout the movies, but like once she starts, um, before she starts torturing him, we find out who's in Chekhov's bag. It's the, of course, the club owner. This man has no feet. He has no tongue. He has no fingers, and he's like making these disgusting sounds. And he's like obviously like hungry and thirsty. Why does Asami go in the kitchen, and puke in a bowl, and bring it to him, and he scarfs it down? I was gagging. There's something about when people eat other people's vomit. Or, I mean, eating vomit in general. But, like, especially eating someone else's vomit. And it was so liquidy for some reason. Like, and he was, like, eating it. And he was, like, enjoying it. Because, obviously, this is all he gets. And it's um disgusting. And definitely made me gag. Like, I literally actually heaved. Um, it's real gross, and then that's when she, um, is ready to start torturing Oyama. Um, you know, she's sticking all these needles in his rib cage, and in his stomach, and his face, and then she's laying on the needles, and she's having a good time with it. Um, earlier in the movie, we saw her, um, kill wheelchair, um, prosthetic wooden feet man, with, um, a wire saw, and then, so she breaks that bad boy out again, and, um, cuts Ayama's foot off, it's pretty brutal, you know, I mean, the, is the last 30 minutes worth it, I mean, yeah, um, so, not only that, though, so, he doesn't die, though, so, um, right as she's torturing him, and she's about to cut off the other foot, his son comes home, and then, um, she chases the sun up the stairs and then the sun fucking Sparta kicks her off the stairs. I mean, it's a brutal kick. Like she goes flying. It's a pretty, it's pretty great. He got, he, he has a future in the NFL possibly. And, um, so she die or she doesn't die instantly. She fucking breaks her neck, but you see, she's still breathing, you know, she's like still fucking breathing. And she's repeating the stuff that she was saying on their date about how, you know, he's di- how she thought he was different. They were going to love each other forever. But he's a liar, just like all of the other ones. Um, Again, I got to the end of this movie. I mean, and this might be, you know, a, a good thing on M.K.'s, you know, part is like, again, like the the moral ambiguity of the movie and the lesson I'm supposed to learn um, is kind of muddled. It's a little bit of a gray area, and it's interesting because I'm still trying to process it. Like that's that's one of the the cons of me um, watching these movies like right before I record, because I usually don't really give myself time to process. Because I usually process movies pretty quickly, and since I'm you know taking notes while I'm watching them. But I watched Ichi the Killer last night, and then I watched Audition this morning before recording. And I'm still just, like, trying to process both of them. And Mike, like I said, is really challenging with the moral ambiguity of both these films. Um, this one, especially, you know, um, he, I mean, he does a great job of building Ayama out as a sympathetic protagonist, despite the things that he's doing. And then, you know, but then also, um, uh, Yamazaki, her view on, you know, men and, you know, what she's went through and stuff. And I don't, I mean, but obviously she's, she's, you know, more clearly distinct, crazy off the deep end. Um, speaking of deep, um, she, she would always say deeper, deeper. She's sticking needles in, um, in the word, the the Japanese words for deeper sounds like kitty. So she's like so it sounds like she's going kitty, 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 kitty. Um, I don't know what she's actually saying, but she's saying deeper. But it sounds like she's saying kitty kitty, which is really funny. But um but I mean these last thirty minutes, um I do enjoy like, you know, the shift in her performance. I like her medieval getup, you know, which um was you know went on to clearly influence american mary by the Saska sisters i still need to watch that one but like they basically have like identical um outfits and i think if i'm wanting 90 minutes of torture instead of the 90 minutes of romance only 30 minutes of torture maybe american mary is probably more my speed um you know, that looks like maybe it's the more fun parts of this movie, but I don't know. Some people like, um, you know, that this movie is a like weird movie cause it's like, like talk about commit to the bit as Mickey lulls you in for 90 minutes, convincing you that you're watching just a weird romance movie, a quirky romance movie, and then, um, hitting you hard with the body horror for the last 30 minutes. Um, uh, I think it's all a part of the experience, I suppose, you know, I, I really did think that more of this movie was going to be the stuff at the end, I mean, it's really, I even say the last 30 minutes, I mean, like the, the torture is only the last 20 minutes, of, or, or the 15 of the last 20 minutes of movie, I mean, it's very, very, you get very little torture than you think that you're going to get from this movie, so... I don't know. It was uh, kinda. It was kind of surprising, in in a lot of ways. Um, I liked Uchi the Killer a lot more, um, just because it's a little bit more kinetic, and um, and Kakihara is my boy now. Um, But I mean, I definitely want to explore more of Mikay's filmography because he just has so many films, and I've read you know the (laughs) synopsi. I always say that as if that is the, the proper way of saying synopsises, but synopsises sounds stupid. So I've read multiple synopsi of you know Takashi Miike's films, and they always always seem really interesting to me. He's just a director that I had never gotten around to, but I do want to explore a little bit more of his filmography, see what other subgenres he dips into. But that'll go ahead and do it for you know Miike for now. Maybe we'll do a Takashi Miike. Part two in the future. Um, so, speaking of future, what's going on um, coming up on the podcast this year? Um, I do have the themes for the f- next few months laid out. So, obviously, we are doing um, Japanuary, Jhor January, um, officially Japanuary. Um, next month, we will be doing Love Sick, tackling. Um, You know, horror romances and sexy erotic thrillers and stuff like that. In March, we will be attempting to survive nature as we head to the outdoors, talking, you know, movies out in nature, um, survival stories, man versus animal slash beasts. Um, Excited for that one. In April... You know rainy April is a real nice and wet month, so we are going to get real nice and wet talking aquatic horror in April. And then in May, um, May is my birthday month, my birthday is at the end of May, so May we will be tackling the Final Destination franchise, we'll be covering all five movies, each one will get their own episode um, similar to the way we did Chucky movies, um, at the beginning of the podcast. So that's what we got going on for the next five months. Very excited for that. Have many special guests that I'm super excited for, um, in the next few weeks coming up, um, in this month, you'll hear from Danny Bethay next week. And then we also have, um, Tyler Liston and Mary Beth, um, from Scarred for Life coming on, so super excited. Um, for these guests coming on and the movies that we're gonna be talking, and um, you know, if this podcast makes it through May, that will take us up to one year of the podcast. So we'll see what happens. So, um, twenty twenty one, I am um very excited for what the future holds on this podcast. But that's going to go ahead and do it for this episode of the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club. New episodes every Tuesday. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us next week as we talk Jew on the Grudge with Danny Bethay. Make sure you are following the podcast, Twitter, and Instagram pages at Bloody Blunt CC and my personal Twitter and Instagram pages at underscore Daddy Disco. And until next time, guys, stay lifted.